uh, what's going to be a really fun night of uh, Fit Foot You. I'm Dr. Ben Pearl. I'm a podiatrist for those of you that don't already know me. And I've had the pleasure of working with uh, Adam from the club uh, and then also um, working with one of my mentors, Aaron, to try to coordinate with some of the podiatry students to jump on this call. And we're going to be lucky enough to have two great clinicians and physicians, Dr. David Armstrong. Uh, he's out of uh, now Los Angeles. He's a professor there of surgery. And then we're going to have uh, Dr. Bijan uh, Najafi, who is another clinical researcher. They collaborate on a number of studies and they're going to review a few. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to lead with, with which the title is of uh, why research is particularly relevant currently is that we uh, with the pandemic have been in a state of information and disinformation. And I think now more than ever, we have to really pay particular scrutiny to the level of information that we're hearing, the sourcing, uh, the number of repeated studies, and the context. Uh, I think that a lot of the information that we're hearing now is out of context. Now, in the news, and I think appropriately for this topic being presented tonight, is that we just heard that, hey, David, I, and this man needs no introduction, as David Letterman would say. But what I was going to do, David, before I, I have you uh, give some eloquent words is just set the context of what I thought was just unbelievable, which is that we have had uh, three or four major drug companies and people are just, the sky is falling with six, uh, which is, it's never good to have deaths, six in a million, which is less than being on the LA freeway and taking your car out to drop your daughter off. You know, I mean, Sadly, that's, that's the, how it is. Um, and uh, I mentioned, and you can share some of your credentialing in a, in a, in a minute. Um, David has been a, a real uh, maverick in both podiatry and crossover to the uh, MD allopathic, holds both degrees, which I just recently relearned that. Um, when I was a student, just to give a little bit of context, I did some very, um, how shall I say, hastily put together research as sort of a maraschino cherry on a Sunday of some work I was doing looking at the effect that sports can have for people that have physical disabilities psychologically. And um, I had done some field work, I had done some stuff at uh, NYU Medical Center, and written papers on the influencing of things even as we look at color as an influence of our perception. Uh, and one of the interesting studies that I read uh, was about how people will remember things they are more familiar and be more comfortable with what they're more familiar. And they did an example of playing cards where if the ace, uh, or let's say the three of spades was turned to a, uh, a red uh, three of spades, you would not remember it as much as if it was a, a black um, three of spades. So they, they had all these different uh, uh, things that I read about uh, sort of psychometrics of how we perceive and how we process information. And the final thing that I did as sort of a wrap up was I said, let's get some college students to look at people with physical disabilities doing sports and uh, also 
that same actor doing uh, desk work. Well, we got a group of students and I wanted to get more, but like a lot of things, it's hard to organize. And the School of Health, Physical Education and Recreation at Indiana University got me 18 or so students. And I said, well, we don't have a large number. Let's show them the film. And we show the film of the desk work. And then we showed the film of the um, same actor doing uh, basketball with his physical disability, left from a wheelchair. And then I surveyed the students. I said, okay, would you feel comfortable having a beer with this person? Would you feel comfortable inviting him to a party? Would you feel comfortable hiring him for a job? Well, naturally, as you might've guessed, people felt more comfortable with the second uh, scenario where this person was doing sports. Um, they just felt like more capable, more affable, et cetera. Well, the interesting part about this hastily conceived study was that I didn't get to matriculate in the spring. The, does anybody, uh, and I'll let my uh, assistants for many of the students uh, give anybody an answer to say, what was the tragic flaw with this hastily conceived maraschino cherry of a study? Anybody wanna raise their hand and I can um, let uh, the, the proctors uh, select a student. Anybody wanna jump in? Julianne, say what, what was wrong with the study? Are you, are you popping in? Anybody have an idea that they wanna share about it? David, can you tell me what was wrong with that study? I don't know if you caught the whole gist of it. I showed uh, a group of students, a person with physical disability doing desk work. And then that same person uh, showed, the, showed the group, again, the same group, the person doing uh, sports and then had them rate different uh, things that they would feel comfortable with. Well, Ben Pearl, I was, uh, I was actually just admiring it. I was trying to see, it seemed like a kind of an elegant idea actually to try to conceive, you know, try because, you know, I think a lot of times uh, we tend to feel comfortable with people that look like us. Right. And, uh, um, and that's, and, and I think people make decisions with these implicit underlying biases, and uh, um, and uh, maybe if we or somebody you know played sports, or uh, uh, then maybe we would feel more comfortable with someone else, you know, kind of a backslapping kind of situation. Or if we saw someone uh, maybe that was disabled, um, then uh, then you know we might have some kind of ableist sort of perception about that woman or man. Uh, and, you know, that happens all the time. I and mean, we always ascribe and, you know, we do it. Uh, there's there are these underlying. I, I don't need to tell everyone here about that, but I, I thought it, I enough, know, and that's one of the things we do yeah. with podiatry is to try to keep uh, people that have, um, let's say, a more minor on the scale of physical disabilities, sometimes with a transmed amputation across the metatarsals and, and hopefully uh, prevent them from having a BK, yeah. which then gets into the. Uh, depending on your state of, you know, and licensure, what, what, uh, what that would be. So I will fill people in. So I don't, I don't have any brave uh, volunteers that want to, want to uh, uh, pr uh, put a uh, uh, idea out there. The problem with the study uh, as true as it probably is, was that I did not have an adequate control because I didn't have a number, a large number of students. So I, I put it as a quote pilot study, uh, but they wanted a strict control because in showing the same group of students, the same two film clips, 
there was a pre-concept idea that could have influenced them in terms of the second uh, viewing with the, with the sports scene. So uh, I had to write a paper uh, attacking my own study in the summer. And then I graduated uneventfully with no cap and gown, uh, you know, sometime in August 21st of, uh, of, that, uh, of that year of uh, 87. Um, and so the only reason that I, um, again, uh, bring it up is that what really, David, interests me now is we've got, you know, sometimes high level drug companies and people that are there to sell us stuff that, you know, should know better. But of course, there are um, uh, obvious agendas that are with industry and, um, you know, even at uh, what's happened lately with the pandemic of how information is being analyzed. So with that sort of backdrop of how important relevant research is, I want to um, introduce Dr. David Armstrong. He's gonna share uh, some of the research that he's been doing, but as a, as a sort of a groundwork piece, David, one of the things I thought would be interesting is there's some new thoughts about what should be valued as evidence-based uh, medicine. I know Bajan was gonna give his own sort of quote, new definition of evidence-based medicine, but maybe you could give us some context um, to what you feel evidence-based medicine is and where we are in 2021. And then uh, share some of the work that you and Bajan are doing. Yeah, sure. And by the way, so where's everyone from? It's like, uh, are these, uh... Students from like, uh, hello, by the way, I'm Armstrong. It's good to meet you. I'm a toe doctor. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the, where are you all? Is, uh, are these all? I, 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 yeah, so I, I, we have some GW. Um, oh, that's awesome. Pre-med pre -med students. Oh, terrific. And, so, is and, every, so everyone's from GW? My, so, my little, but, yeah, go ahead. Uh, then we also have some students from Temple, podiatry students. And some, oh. uh, I don't know yeah. if the New York students are here yet, but uh We've had some uh, crossover from uh, the New York school, and I don't know if there's any other podiatry schools that oh, are. That's terrific. Are so we have some that are already in the uh, podiatric medical school, and then we have some that are uh, uh, that are in undergrads. Uh, you, you mentioned G Dub uh, as well. My, my little list, our little list, is it uh, just pretty close to you guys at uh, Georgetown? So although she's going, she's virtual as well. She's I don't know. They rented a house in freaking upstate New York. I, well, I don't know. They're like save up money, and now it's like this is what they're doing every semester. They, they, uh, they, they go on uh, Airbnb, and then they're like, uh, anyway, God bless them. Uh, well, it's good to meet you all. I'm uh, 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 David Armstrong. I am a uh, podiatric surgeon, uh, professor of surgery at uh, well, the, the Keck School of Medicine at at USC, but um, I. Um, I've had a long-standing interest in uh, in this field and, and looking after feet, and you know, I I grew up with this. My pop, my dad, who passed away about 15 years ago, was a was a foot doctor, and I kind of grew up in the clinic in the office with him. And I was kind of just given pretty much everything, and uh, it to be frank, and I've had no no excuses uh, but to sort of pay it forward, um, and. Uh, and that's really that that's been really my course to be to uh, to be frank and it's a it's one of the main reasons that I've gotten in to kind of where I am now and in, in uh, uh, kind of focused on more of a an academic uh, uh, you know as an academic surgeon now um, I've always felt like that this was my way to sort of pay it forward because I I, I felt uh, 
that there were so many questions that I had when I was in clinic with my dad uh, back in the day. Uh, and that's really where a lot of these questions come from. It's uh, li quite literally at the chair side uh, and uh, uh, at the bedside and whether uh, you are really whatever specialty you are, whether you're a foot doctor or whether you're another uh, 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 specialist, these things always come up. But I think most clinicians uh, don't kind of venture into doing a lot of uh, uh, research like we're talking about. You're going to hear from Bijan in a minute, who's my longtime buddy and uh, uh, um, and uh, former employee. Uh, but uh, the the you know so the, a lot of what we're doing now. Well, well, let me start with this for those of you who don't, don't who aren't like foot doctors. So look. And looking after feet, I mean, I can't think of anything kind of just, uh, uh, I, I love it, but you, you know, I, at, at, for, at first glance, uh, you know, you think this is just what a ridiculous sort of notion, but I, um, I can think of two great gifts in, in looking after people's feet and for me to try to keep them attached to people. Right. But, uh, the first is that I think, um, you know, in this era of rampant uh, chest uh, thumping and hubris, um, I can't think of anything that's more of an expression of humility uh, than looking after someone's feet. And, you know, it crosses all borders and socioeconomic backgrounds and religions and I mean, even time, right? Tending to someone's feet is an expression of humility. It's an expression uh, in some ways that you don't know something or it's just, you know, showing respect. So there's that. There's the humility thing. But then the other thing that's a little bit more is a great gift as well is working out at the end of this, you know, anatomic peninsula, if you will, uh, at the end of the body, it gives you this great gift of, of perspective, right? My dad used to tell me that, uh, actually, I think my mom told me uh, that the, the best gift, uh, gift you can give someone besides your love is, uh, is perspective. Uh, and, and I think that's really true. And, and the, the funny thing is, is you can kind of hang out on that anatomic peninsula, just doing your thing and your life can be by yourself, right? On that peninsula. And it could probably be pretty relaxing or you could choose to collaborate with the anatomic mainland, all right? And uh, we've sort of chosen the latter and I can tell you it's great. I mean, my God, we're working on everything from, you know, spray on skin to, uh, to, uh, next uh, to wearable robots and uh, pretty much uh, uh, everything uh, uh, in between. And uh, we have a broad interest in, in this area. But when you think about it, helping people move through the world um, uh, kind of gives you this broad remit in looking after things. And there's very few people that, we're, we, that we don't work with, right? I mean, the, the guy that, um, first guy I met uh, here at our place here and at Rancho Los Amigos at uh, their facility we work at here in Los Angeles uh, when I was getting recruited out here from from Arizona uh, for the first guy that uh, I met that became one of my closest friends is Charles Liu and Charles is a, a neurosurgeon right and Charles and I uh, you know we had mutual interests in brain computer interfaces right and you'd say what's a, what's a foot doctor and a freaking brain doctor, you know, kind of doing working together, but, you know, really we kind of meet in the middle. And, and so you, the, the point is that uh, I, I just think that your, your training and your sort of degree should uh, maybe it should define you in a way because it's, it's your sum total of effort. 
but I'll just say that it shouldn't like, if I could tell you anything, no matter what you do, um, it shouldn't confine you. Right. And, 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 and that's really the big idea. Um, and, but, uh, uh, anyway, I'm happy to talk about any of these, any of the projects that we're doing, but maybe I ought to um, send it along to, uh, is, uh, is Bijan still there? Or there, there he is. The, the, uh, did you want to introduce Bijan Najafi? Ah, oh, let me introduce Bijan Najafi. Yeah, please. How's that? Oh, look at that. Okay. So, so listen, back way back in the day, um, and for you guys, it's way, way back in the day, but this was like in the uh, early uh, 2000s or mid, mid 2000s. Um, but uh I uh, had uh, gotten recruited, uh, this is uh, to, to be the uh, research dean out at Shoal uh, College of Podiatric Medicine at Rosalind Franklin University um, at, uh, in Chicago. And um, one of my first hires, um, I, I'd heard about this like star um, out in Boston um, at, at Harvard that was doing all this work with, uh, uh, the, with uh, the kind of uh, working wearables and uh, work in human motion. And I thought it was really fascinating. And so we ended up getting uh, 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 hooked up uh, 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 together and I recruited him out to Chicago. Um, and uh, since then, the sky's been the limit. Uh, he uh, uh, is probably the top guy in the world in what we now call wearables. Um, and uh, he started in, uh, he, by the way, his accent, I'm just gonna tell you, is just, it's impossible to really define. And so if you need me to kind of help uh, sort of translate, I'll do that like the subscript. But because so, he started in friggin' Tehran, then he went to Isfahan, then Lausanne, there's a lot of ons here, then Boston, and then Chicago, and then t uh, Tucson, and now friggin' Houston. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the pride uh, of Baylor College of Medicine, uh, Professor Bijan Najafi. Thank you so much, David. Uh, wow, <laughs> I'm speechless after this kind introduction. Hello, everyone. As David yeah. mentioned, I'm Bijan uh, Najafi. Uh, I'm actually proud to say that I was one of the mentee of Professor Armstrong. And honestly, every time I'm learning something new from him, so I continue to be his mentee. Um, I'm uh, currently, as David mentioned, I'm in Houston with Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, I'm professor in the Department of Surgery and Director of Clinical Research at Division of Vascular Surgery. Uh, naturally, because of my liaison with uh, Division of Vascular Surgery, I have a great interest about limb and lower extremity and wound healing. Uh, at the same time, as David mentioned, I'm very interested to see how uh, people move through the board and how we can help them to uh, move through the board. Uh, so I'm working mainly on the area of the digital health, wearable technology, remote patient monitoring, and uh, also the solution that can simplify the measurement of that, how people move through the board, as, as well as um, creating some innovative solution to deliver care in place when the patient is the most comfortable that could be actually their home or uh, any place that they are living. Um, so uh, later on, I, I would be happy to explain some of the research that we are doing, uh, but I, I'm, it's a great honor to, to be here to speak uh, along with my great mentor, uh, Professor Armstrong and my friend and colleague, Dr. Per. Thank you. Well, I'll put this to both of you. Um, let's define 
evidence-based medicine, where we are right now. Um, in either one of you can kind of give your thoughts about it and um, I'll just let you kind of take it, take it from there. Sure. Yeah, you want, like, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll go, I'll go first, I guess, Bijan. Uh, the, the, uh, well, the, um, the, 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 unless you want to, man, feel free, by the way, or not, or wait. Um, but, but I think um, that medicine is like, I, I think in general, um, it's, it's just the greatest, I think, profession, yeah. Uh, in the world. I can't think of anyone that's like, I think can't think of a higher calling, frankly. Um, but it is necessarily like really conservative. Uh, and uh, it obviously it's conservative because you don't, you don't want to hurt someone. Uh, if you're doing something new, the old story is don't be, never be the first and never be the last. I think I've probably violated both of those <laughs> one time or another, but, but the, um, the point is that uh, what we do in in medicine is often we do what we were what what our mentor trained us to do, or 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 the kind of culture of the the program where we trained. And, and this is, I think, true in a lot of other um, you know in a lot of other professions or disciplines. I mean, you can think in the law. If you clerked for a judge, you would probably be. Uh, you know, influenced by her or him. Uh, uh, if you, you know, worked uh, for an architect, I guess you probably would be influenced by the, that school of architecture, as it were. So um, that's kind of the way a lot of people learn and have learned in, in medicine uh, in, in the past. And I think for the most part, there's a lot of good that exists in that. It's almost like an old school, it's almost like a medieval guild, if you will. And not too far away, really, from guilds. Uh, in fact, in uh, in England, if you're a surgeon, you're still part of the Society of Barber Surgeons. So if you if you become a surgeon, so I I'm the in the the Royal College of Surgeons, and it's a so the the culturally you see these kinds of weird kinds of uh, 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 things. But that so so you have this kind of training, right? That is very very. I do this. Therefore, you, you know, you copy this and then you do this. That doesn't always um, um, gel very, really well with, well, why do I do this? And why do I do it this way? Um, in the past, it's really been because I, say it's, because I said so, you know, and uh, because this is the way it is. But I'd say maybe over the last generation or two, um, more and more um, men and women uh, in, in medicine, uh, and around medicine, within engineering like Bijan, uh, and within other uh, other areas uh, in, in in basic science, um, have challenged some of these sort of uh, sacred cattle, as it were. And what we have found is that a lot of things that we thought were um, you know the, the, were correct were were often not because we challenged them with robust um, randomized controlled trials. Uh, in, in what we call evidence-based medicine. And that is how we've made progress, really, I think over the last uh, 10 years and uh, 15 years, like we haven't made in the last 150. So it's a super exciting time because I think you have this really kind of robust sort of old kind of uh, style of training that I don't think is necessarily 
just bad in and of itself, but I do think it needs to be constantly refreshed and challenged. And that's what's happening now because uh, we're, we're seeing now more and more good quality work coming out from various facilities. But the trouble is, is I think for, for most men and women that are working in the field, they may not be exposed to someone who's doing a lot of, of, uh, of research in a, in a given training program. So I'd say to you guys, if you're interested in that, really seek out that woman or that man that's doing it. And just, you know, like with any mentor, just try to be like her, be like him. And, and that's the thing. We need uh, more mentors like that because that's ultimately, I think, how we're judged. And I think that's ultimately how we really make a difference is by paying it forward like that. Bijan? Bijan Najafi? David gave a great definition. Actually, um, the, the part that I really like what, about what he described is that is a long-term uh, and lifetime process that needs to be updated. So if you look at the theoretical definition, of course, um, sometimes when we are talking um, among the, uh, in the conference or maybe even some scientific environment, sometimes the concert evidence-based medicine that means the best uh, external clinical evidence, but it's not just that. It's really combination of several factors. Um, uh, the best definition of evidence-based medicine probably came from Dr. David Sackett. Actually, he was uh, a Canadian American physician and he's considered as a father of evidence-based medicine. He defined evidence-based medicine as integrating individual clinical expertise and patient values with the best available external clinical evidence from systematic search, systematic research. So uh, this is very important. I mean, you, you need to look at about patient value, what the patient wants, often we neglect that component. This is very important. It's not just you think that this is best for patient. You need to understand what the patient wants. Also, you need to consider your clinical expertise. Uh, doesn't mean that if there is a technique is coming without acquiring that skill, you can implement it in a practice. And obviously uh, is external clinical evidence uh, that is changing and, uh, uh, and you need to evaluate that how you keep yourself up to date to understand that change because a practice that maybe yesterday we consider or even today we consider as the best uh, available or best clinical uh, evidence for treating a condition maybe uh, tomorrow we may find out that is not so keeping up to date and following the research is very important of course uh, if look at uh, into the depth uh, the process to um, extracting the information about the best available external clinical evidence is tricky because um, unfortunately we have many publications as at the beginning, uh, Dr. Perrin mentioned um, that it may not necessarily considering all the source of the bias or might have bias by a sponsor or um, they, they might be some unethical plan that is a whole other discussion but how you identify the level of evidence and uh, determine the best clinical evidence. This is also another different process that maybe later on we can talk about it, about level of evidence one, two, three, four, and how you decided to select the, 
the, um, the most accurate information about um, uh, uh, a chemical evidence from um, systematic research. You want to define the, um, the levels of evidence as you know them? You mentioned one, two, three. Sure. Uh, of course, the best level of evidence that we consider that we, we considering as level one is to start with a systematic review. Uh, there are some great resources like Cochrane uh, research that you can find systematic review that often is meta-analyzing uh, to find out the best evidence. What that means, uh, usually there are a senior researcher like Professor Armstrong uh, that systematically um, identify through all the literatures without any bias, any other level one evidence that's considered as randomized control trial that I will explain in a minute. And then um, usually for the same condition, uh, uh, we may have the several um, a study that use a technology, like for example, a, a kind of the type of the surgery and they report the outcomes. Uh, but uh, one, one problem that sometimes we have is that uh, the study that is done in uh, Professor Armstrong uh, research clinic, uh, since he has excellent study coordinator, maybe everything is very accurate, very accurate data. And then you're coming to my clinic, maybe I, I don't have a great study coordinator, or I may not use a, uh, the latest tools and I may have different results. So what it does on systematic review is that it combines the results of two studies and is doing a meta-analyzing to find out that, for example, what is the effect size of that kind of the intervention. And this is how we can identify the information. So if you could, if you find a good systemic review, meta-analyzing, usually you can trust that, that this is the best available evidence. Um, after a systemic review, uh, another study that is concept level one is a randomized control trial um, that I don't know that per, do you want that I go to definition of randomized control trial or we can discuss later? Um, how about give a, a 15 second definition? So uh, randomized control trial that um, probably from its names is clear. That means you randomly selecting a pool of um, actually patient with a clear definition of inclusion exclusion criteria, and then randomly assign them, one of them in intervention group and other one in the control group. And everything is the same and you're following and then you identify the outcomes and then you compare the outcome of intervention compared to control group. So this is what we consider as a time group effects. Uh, it's not just time effect. That means we are not comparing compared to the baseline that whether that patient feels better or not. We're comparing that whether this delta that we have from baseline, what is the difference compared to control group? Because we have often the effect of sham group. When you give a surgery, sometimes the patient feels that it's better. So that's why that this is the best level of evidence how, if you are designing randomized control trial. Often, it's even better if we can to blind patient to type of the group assignment, as well as blind the clinical providers or in particular, the person who analyzes data to remove the source of the bias. This is how we define as randomized control trial. Uh, then uh, the, uh, after randomized control trial that is considered level one evidence, the level two evidence is considered as a cohort study. What that means, that means that you are not cherry pick your patient 
Sometimes the doctors say, oh, this is a good patient, has a good compliance, so let's only selecting that patient for the research. So Cherry this picking. Is, yeah. Yes, exactly. Exact. So th this is not a good research. Usually <laughs> the good research is that every comer, if it satisfies inclusion exclusion criteria, should be participating in the research. So this is what we define as a cohort study that is a level two. Uh, then um, the level three evidence is what we consider as a case control series. That means that we have a group of the people already you assign them to intervention and the other one in the control. So it's not randomized. So we have some sort of the bias that you may have, but at least we have a control group. We have a reference to compare at least the intervention to that reference. Uh, level four evidence that means that you have just case series. That means you don't have any control uh, to compare the results with. And level five evidence is expert opinion or narrative review, something that sometimes we write about it, say that this is what we have. And sometimes it could be animal research, et cetera. So those all is going to the category of level five evidence. Would you like to share maybe- And that was like a tour de force. Yeah, I know, right? right? Look at that. Very succinct. Yeah, just kind of right. I don't know if it was succinct, but it was very much a tour de force. <laughs> but uh, the, the, by the way, the, but, but I tend to be on the end of why say it in two words when you can say it in 200. Bijan is usually even quicker than I am, though. That was pretty awesome. No, it's, it was yeah, go great. Ahead. Great. And I think it gives everybody. Now, in that same context, Bijan, if you could, and, and uh, one of my mentees, Tony, Tony Saad, who's, who's doing some work now at Columbia. Uh, and uh, and uh, I want to congratulate him for getting into medical school up there. He mentioned precision medicine, which kind of goes to the definition that you already sort of mentioned with evidence-based, but precision being even more dialed. So my, just to give the context of how I understand it, precision medicine is if we have somebody with an insulin pump and let's say uh, they're 80 points off uh, on the study that was done, but then you have a patient in your office that's only 40 points off where their target uh, blood sugar should be, that precision-based medicine is trying to, as you sort of alluded to, pick the best sort of sets of studies for that particular patient. How do you view Bijan precision medicine, and I'll ask you too, David, uh, as being different from the definition that you already did? Is it just sort of an ex expansion of the moving, um, evolving of better evidence-based medicine? Or is it, is it a, a slight distinction? If you could just comment, either one of you. There is a little difference actually here. Uh, of course, the term of precision medicine originally came from genome sequencing. That means that the idea is that each individual is different than another person. So if you would like to see that whether that practice, it's beneficial to that individual, maybe we can have the gene of that individual, sequencing that gene, and then we provide a targeted therapy for that individual. In fact, when cancer therapy, this is a very hot topic that uh, maybe some of the uh, drug that may be effective for that one individual may not work on the other individual. So in that case, this is what we are doing. But of course, uh, since then, uh, precision medicine has been uh, evolved. And as you mentioned, now we are using the term of personalized medicine is beyond our precision medicine. 
personalized medicine in particular in geriatric population, we know that we have a huge heterogeneity. And the idea is that how we can find out all the available information that we have to personalize care for that particular individual. And uh, thanks to the big data that we have from health electronic records, sometimes we have genomes, sometimes we have history of the care, and with these advanced machine learning, artificial intelligence, we can combine all those information and predict that maybe that type of the surgery may produce a good outcome for that individual or is not. For instance, one of these terms that become very popular, and David and I, we tried for uh, testing the outcome of revascularization on the, on the patient for saving the limb was frailty. That is one of the, just one of the tools. We have many tools to define personalized medicine, but one of the tools is a physical frailty that identify that a geriatric patient, uh, whether it can respond good with minimum adverse events to a surgical intervention that we are providing to that individual. Uh, but there are many other sources that's coming that noise go to the category of the digital health that uh, based off collection of all those information and big data analytic maybe can help us and guide the physician to decide that what may work the best for that individual. You're at the beginning of the road. There are a lot of research going on that spectrum, but it's very exciting uh, area of research for, for us as a researcher. Yeah, it's a super exciting time. And I won't go into any more uh, uh, detail on it, except to say that um, I think the work that's going on now with what remote patient monitoring, or we call it RPM, um, is, is just, man, it's just so awesome. Because the things that we used to play with, that I played with back in the, the 90s, when they used to cost some of these, you know, gyroscopes and um, um, and uh, accelerometers and magnetometers used to cost, and whatever ometers, whatever, but they used to cost five, ten thousand dollars. Now they're almost free, and uh, uh, and those sorts of things that can identify where someone is in space and how rapidly they're moving, and then where they are uh, now with uh, with GPS becoming so affordable and ubiquitous is both fantastic but it's also creepy. And so I guess you could say it's, we, we, if you, it's creep-tastic, right? Cause you know, it's a little bit of both. So uh, we have to, as we personalize so much of this and as we can get so much information now about so many people all the time, we have to ask ourselves the sort of Talmudic question uh, about sort of who owns these data. Uh, and, uh, um, and I think we as patients, not just we as doctors, but we as, Patients really need to take control over this and own these data. And that is a, um, a big sort of uh, question. It's an existential question for, for many companies, um, but it is a critical ethical question, I think, for most of us as, um, as patients. And I think we're, as patients, ultimately going to prevail um, um, there. But again, if we're going to own all these data, we have to figure out how to make sense of it. And that, and what Bijan was talking about, about, you know, big data, so-called big data analytics and uh, uh, other methods to, to measure these things, they can be prone to a lot of biases as well. And they, but they could also be prone 
to lead to for patients to have what we call kind of paralysis of analysis, right? To where to where you have so much information, you just get over overwhelmed with it. I I uh, was just uh, on this uh, this afternoon um, with a patient. You know, it was uh, you know the really late at night in the Middle East and. Uh, um, she and, and, and her husband were on with me and, um, and it was just like that. They had so much data, they didn't know what to do with it. Um, and they were trying to make sense of that. Um, but in reality, what they really needed was just a woman or man. They needed a, a doctor to be with them just to, to work with them and to do things with them and not to them. Uh, they were already five or six steps ahead of that because they had Googled so many things. Uh, based on the uh, information that they had from their clinic visit at a uh, facility in Abu Dhabi. But anyway, the, the, that's just one little, little example, but it happens 10 times a day. And, and uh, 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 for, for all of us, uh, Ben, I know for you, for sure as well. Yeah. I want to um, sort of tandem that point you just made about how things have become more available. So a few weeks ago, I had a guest, he was an Australian demo skier. His name is Tom Gelly, and he's, very instinctively what, what, what kind of skier what he's is a, it he's well he's a racer and he's a yeah. he's a demo skier Dem, uh, it's a demonstration skier in, in the ski industry it's one of the highest levels you can sounds like it man that sounds like that double quadruple black diamond yeah yeah like a Warren triple Miller. black diamond with like, a, i don't even know twist. yeah i gotta look this yeah. up so he's really up there and demo he, skier Bijan. yeah that was like when you were in the alps in lazan that was when Bajan he had the one, that was when Bajan yeah. had the one piece. You know, and everybody <laughs> he did. Was in with just he the did. One he piece. still does. He has the unitard. Uh, <laughs> uh, just does it, has a B right on the front there. <laughs> so he um, he is very much into uh, foot control, motion, etc. But they have uh, worked with a system called Carve that is a data system, so that a at a at a retail level of what you were saying was thousands of dollars. Now somebody's uh, prepping for a level two ski exam, you know, as a ski examiner, can use this carve system to look at their fore aft positioning, which is critical in, in skiing because you want to be going in the progression of the fall line of the turn um, at a reasonable price. And here's, here's the kicker, and this is something I, that I want to, since Bijan does so much engineering research, but what I think is ironic, is that we in the clinic, when sometimes I'm looking at a study, now there are better studies that are coming available, but for instance, I wanted to find something on what are the effects of carbon plates on hallux limitus as a baseline. Now, what I did find, because the Australians coincidentally, uh, as you had noted, uh, David, and, and, and directed me to, uh, Doug Ritchie pointed me to a study that you had, you had uh, referenced yourself. There's a couple studies that show the use of carbon plates with mid-tarsal arthritis and the, and the improvement. And this is a, I, I believe it was a small randomized controlled uh, study. What was interesting though, is there was nothing directly on the first ray. They did show that there was some muted motion in the first ray with the carbon plates. So I'm just gonna uh, say a full disclosure. I'm just gonna tell you why I was particularly interested in it because I, um, full disclosure, uh, had developed something that I think can also be used in tandem with carbon plates, which is what I call a turf toe splint or hallux limitus splint. I developed with a company called OS First. So I wanted to see as a baseline, what is out there? And 
Interestingly enough, it's hard to find a lot of good data on the first ray. There's certainly a lot that's been written about it from back with Dale Morton and hypermobility of the first ray, but there isn't a lot of quantified data of what is the, you know, chronological chronology of what's happening with Helix Limitus uh, or some other entity in the big toe in what's what's out there. So uh, with that as a um, sort of segue, Bijan, why don't you and David share with me some of the interesting engineering things that you have uh, pioneered with an offloading and anything that you want to comment on, you know, what I sort of threw out there. Oh, sure. T tons of stuff. But let's jump on what you're talking about. Uh, they, they, oh, by the way, you know, I, I don't want to be putting everyone to frigging sleep, by the way. If anyone has any questions about anything, please, you guys just have holler. a chat monitor. So uh, I'll, I'll yeah, but, if anybody has something they want to post. This is like this is like adult daycare for me, you guys. Uh, I did, but uh, <laughs> the but FYI, I just got this big old frigging protein bowl over here. This is so California, FYI, guys. But this holy cow, it really looks good. I would have never said this before because this is almost super emasculating, but there's a spectacular looking protein bowl waiting for me uh, <laughs> as well. I can't, I should show you guys because it looks amazing. I can't believe, it. I think it costs like a mortgage payment, but, but it's, uh, it's just right down the road. Uh, but, uh, but, but anyway, uh, I'm not going to eat that because I'll fall asleep now uh, with, uh, with such low blood sugar. But if you guys have any questions about any of this stuff, please holler. Uh, you know, we're happy to talk at you, but uh and there's so much going on that we're doing. I mean, it's very. I broad. agree. I want this to be collaborative. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. You're you're uh, you're, you're uh, the, the so welcome. And I do know. I know you guys uh, go through so many zooms a day, uh, and uh, you'd rather be having the skin slowly ripped off your face uh, than be on another zoom call or any of this stuff. But you're very very welcome. You really are. You could uh, uh, put it in the chat box, or you could uh, uh, message us, or whatever you guys want to do. But as you're doing that, um, again, just holler. Uh, one thing I could uh, mention that uh, um, I thought you could probably use, Ben, that I was working on and Bijan really pioneered uh, about, gosh, 10 years ago now. Uh, but uh, in fact, so, so long ago now that the company that we first started with uh, has already gone out of business two or three times uh, but uh, we were working on way back when uh, in the earlier days of, of uh, what are people now call intelligent textiles, um, really cool smart socks. And <laughs> it sounds goofy, you know, smart socks, but uh, these socks um, have, uh, uh, in fact, I have a pair in one of these drawers here that's uh, uh, completely bricked, but it was like a $70,000 pair of socks. Uh, but, but these socks, had little car, had little fibers in them, little fiber optic uh, um, uh, uh, solutions in there. And there's also ceramic solutions and uh, others that you could use. Um, and they could not only measure pressure and temperature, but the ones that have the actual fibers in them, they can measure, uh, if you think about it, like, like if your sock is, is uh, or if your, your toes moving or a body part is moving, it could measure like a, a goniometer or a compass sort of, right? Uh, uh, motion around a certain joint, and you can kind of infer, uh, you know, motion at various joints. And that was one of the most exciting things for me about that thing. And that's long since gone, but now super, there are, there are devices now that are even more sophisticated. And we've been working lately with one of our buddies up, he's an ex-Microsoft guy, uh, Davide Vigano. What a great name, David, da David, with a little E at the end, Davide Vigano. And da Davide is from uh, 
up kind of by Lake Cuomo. So Cuomo's a pretty rough place to be from, but he lives now near Seattle and he was ex-Microsoft and he started a company called Sensoria and they have some really cool intelligent textiles, all kinds of different wearables. Uh, and uh, uh, we, we've worked with uh, those, some of those devices and really some of those next generation devices are uh, may be able to help you a lot, Ben. I don't know if you wanted to talk about that, Bijan, if you're still there. Bijan? Yes, I am. Sure, uh, I can, but uh, David, you you explain beautifully, continue. Well then, well, then, well then, never mind. we can go on to something else. Uh, the, 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 yeah, here, but you wanna talk about, so, so uh, anyway, you guys, uh, for, for those of you that, that have an interest in, in this, um, the, the um, some of you may be aware, if you're an undergrad, you may not be, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, diabetes is obviously a pretty big uh, problem, not only in the United States, there's about give or take 35 million people with diabetes in the United States. There are about 100 million people with diabetes or pre-diabetes um, and uh, about half of them will develop um, neuropathy where they lose what one of my mentors, uh, Paul Brand used to call the gift of pain. So they can literally wear a hole in their foot like, like you or I, we'd all wear a hole in our sock or a shoe, um, even if it's a smart sock. Uh, and uh, that hole, that's called a diabetic uh, foot ulcer. And um, we had a, a technical review recently in the, the New England Journal where we found that uh, you know these uh, sores happen now around the world every one second, 1.2 seconds, give or take, and it's getting more common. And then half of those wounds get infected for various reasons. Uh, and then once that infection happens, then there, there's an amputation every 20 seconds now, 20 seconds around the world. So um, we'd like to say that time's up for this, right? Uh, and we'd like to push back the clock. And there's a lot that we can do. Uh, there's a lot we can do surgically to treat these things, uh, to, to, to debride them and to reconstruct them. Uh, I don't have time to talk about that, but there's a lot of cool things we're doing, uh, we're doing there. There's a lot of things we can do medically to optimize people's uh, glucose control, their lipid profile, kind of anti-thrombotic kind of profile and stuff to, to get them on best medical therapy. And then there's stuff we can do mechanically to kind of spread force out over a larger unit area, if you will, and, and over time even, and that's called offloading, offloading. And, uh, and so we've, that's been an area of, of interest uh, amongst many areas of interest for me for some time since I was, you know, training for so long, because it's been something that we all talk about, but we don't do a lot of it. Um, and um, so the, the best device, the best thing that we have right now to offload someone to take pressure off of the bottom of their foot, believe it or not, is a cast. And it's called a total contact cast. And that's actually still my favorite method uh, to offload it, offload people. But the trouble is, is that even though it heals people really well in randomized controlled trials, we and other people have done, um, it's a cast. People don't like it because it's hot and heavy. Uh, and it's hard. And doctors don't like it because it's hard to put on. Um, uh, but so there you are. Uh, so people have uh, moved from using casts um, a lot to using something that's easier, which are like those boots that you might see someone wearing on the sidelines, maybe in a basketball game or a football game. It's called a removable cast boot. And those things are really great because they can reduce pressure like, uh, like a cast. Um, and, uh, uh, and so 
and it's easy to put one of those on, you know, unless you have an aversion to Velcro, you could probably figure out how to put one of those on. You don't need any training. Uh, uh, the trouble is that because these patients, our patients don't have, they can't feel pain, uh, they're, they're more likely actually uh, to take that device off. And back in the day, 15, 17 years ago, we measured that with in the early days of wearables. And we found people were wearing their, that removable boot, believe it or not. And remember, these are people with wide open wounds on the bottom of their feet. If you saw this, you guys would have this visceral reaction to it. Um, and they're, they're, but they were only wearing that boot for about 28% of their total activity. So the other you know, 72% of the day on average, patient folks, almost three quarters of the day, these folks were walking around either barefoot or with something else on their foot. And these are people with, with I mean, open wounds on their feet. And, and again, uh, uh, so it's dangerous. Hey, can obviously. I interject? Who came up with the zip ties to measure compliance as one of the elements of one of the- Yeah, yeah. So again, it's just kind of marching through evidence-based medicine and sort of logic. We're, we're just doing these individual studies. The, the, uh, the, the one device offloads as well as the other, but it doesn't heal people as well. Why? because they're removing it well, if, but people aren't using that cast. Only 2% of people are using the cast. More people are using the boot, but it doesn't heal people as well. Why? Because they're removing it. Maybe we can make that boot irremovable. So that led us in another study we did in the middle of the 2000s to just putting like a zip tie on that thing and kind of ensuring adherence to the thing. It's like, a, and that created what people can now call instant total contact casts or ITCCs. The trouble with that though, is that you're doing something to someone, I think, and you're not doing it like with them. Uh, and that's a very California thing uh, that that's, uh, the, the, I know it's kind of touchy feely and I should be eating my, my protein bowl, my acai bowl while I'm talking to you about that. But, I, uh, but truly I think it's important, right? And I think uh, doing something with someone is a lot more fun as a surgeon or a, or a physician or uh, anyone than doing something, than doing it uh, 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 to them. And so that uh, has led us now, and you know, with Bijan and me, uh, we just got this uh, big uh, NIH uh, grant to look at this smart boot, which has the, the, that intelligent textile stuff that I told you uh, from that Sensoria team, and they're kind of rejiggering a boot uh, that already exists uh, to be uh, intelligent, certainly more intelligent than the toe doctor that's uh, you that's putting it on the patient. And so we're testing that. We're so we're using a we're testing a removable device, a standard one, a regular boot that has some sensors on it, but we're not giving. But 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 we're only looking at that stuff later. An irremovable device, and then a device that is a smart device that is giving people a little information. Uh, when, uh, that tells them when they're being adherent and, and they're not, and when they're not, and kind of coaching them and saying, Hey, good job, man. Good job, Ms. Garcia. Good job, Mr. Smith. Um, and, uh, and kind of giving them a bit of a thumbs up and kind of, or thumbs down and gamifying it a little bit. And to overuse the term gamifying, because I think overused for the last 15 years. Uh, but the thing is that um, that's the big idea. We're hoping that we can be um, improving care by, by doing something like that. And we think that that kind of thing is gonna give us so much information about how people 
um, uh, behave and react. And we'll really be able to, just like Bijan and you, Ben, said, well, to like personalize care um, for, this, for this patient population. And, and so that's really, really exciting. Plus, there's tons of other things we're doing in that study uh, by collecting uh, data on how folks move through the world and kind of being able to predict uh, all kinds of things that we can, where we can hope, help, uh, help them, I think, help them heal and hopefully um, remain healed. Bijan, Najavi? Yes, David, you gave an excellent example for evidence-based medicine. Uh, if you remember, we said that evidence-based medicine uh, has three components. One of them is best evidence, but they have two other components, uh, components that unfortunately uh, often we neglect them. One, uh, one of them is clinical expertise and the other one is patient values. In fact, for patient values, I would like to emphasize on it more. So as David mentioned, currently total contact casts, it provides best evidence for healing the wound. But if you look at, in point of view of practice, David Armstrong published a great paper that shows that only 2% of the outpatient clinic in the United States practice total contact casts. Because maybe time consuming, maybe make a mess. So if you look at on the aspect of clinical expertise or practice is not very well popular. But most importantly, patient may not like it. When all the time you should wear the boots, that means that at night when you don't need to have offloading, also you should wear the boots. You cannot take shower, you cannot inspect the wound. So that's the part that actually, if you look at patient values, it doesn't satisfy that criteria. So despite that total contact cast may provide the best evidence for wound healing, but since may not satisfy two other categories, maybe this is not necessarily evidence-based medicine if you look at the traditional definition. But uh, that, that's a way that maybe we can find out a better or creative um, things to uh, involve patient values. Maybe that kind of the aspect of a smart boots that can help us to understand that whether the patient really remove their boots or not, because those boots are smart. We can detect it that if somebody is walking, is walking with, with their boots or not, and we can reinforce them. And if they don't have compliance, then through remote patient monitoring, we can find out about it. We can engage caregivers, the relative, as well as care providers to reinforce adherence or maybe switch them to the total contact cast. But if they have a good compliance, to where they're offloading. And when they are sitting or when they are on the bed and want to sleep, they can remove the offloading. Maybe that's a way that might be allowable. We may have a still good outcomes on the wound healing and also we satisfy the criteria of the patient values. So we can give in this example over and over. And again, if you look at about the personalized medicine, I'm, I'm personally very excited about it. Uh, that can really transform the way that we are delivering care to the patient. Uh, I would like to give uh, another example that actually it was uh, created thanks to David, fantastic works that he has done for prediction of incident of foot ulcer. Uh, if you look at the traditional way to provide care to somebody who has high risk of foot ulcer, is that we need to regularly um, actually schedule an appointment for that individual to come to clinic 
So we check the risk factor, removing callus or any other factors that we need for that individual. Uh, the, the problem for this is that, of course, uh, many healthcare systems may not afford that to cover, for example, seeing patient every three months. Uh, patient also might be problematic every three months coming to clinic. And often also we may miss interval to provide timely care to this patient. So what we can do about it to make these more personalized. Uh, David Armstrong uh, actually find out that if we look at the temperature on the feet, temperature is a good sign of inflammation. We know uh, from great work of Paul Bland that brand, uh, that skin is heat up before breakdown. And David Armstrong and Larry Lavery demonstrate that if we monitor skin temperature and provide this information to the patient and care providers, we can successfully prevent reoccurrence of foot ulcer. But now there is a company that designed a simple, a smart bath mat that you can place it next to the bed or in the bathroom. Uh, and it would be enough to stand on that mat for 20 seconds. And what it does, it measures the temperature on bottom of feet. They have an artificial intelligent algorithm to isolate hot spot on the bottom of the feet. And then by streaming this data to a cloud, it can predict that what is the risk that that individual predict foot ulcer. And we did this study actually when I was at the University of Arizona working with David and we demonstrate that this technique can help us to predict incident of foot ulcer with 37 days lead time that is sufficient window to provide timely care to the patient and also has a very good accuracy to predict them with 97% accuracy. Of course, we have a lot of false alerts. So we have poor specificity. But if we consider this as a triaging of the patient that should be immediately seen the clinic or receiving a telemedicine consultation to reduce the risk, that might be a, it's a good way. This is the way that we can personalize them. It's not just saying that every patient every three months should come to clinic. We can decide that who should come urgently to the clinic to provide care for them. So we have many of examples that's going on in the research through this interdisciplinary collaboration and leveraging the technology that become cheap and cheaper to provide more personalized care to the patient that also is aligned with their patient values. That's, that's great stuff. I wanted to um, segue to what you had done some work with uh, telemedicine and compliance and I wanted to share a little vignette that uh, happened to me over the weekend with a, with a telemedicine uh, visit. Certainly telemedicine is here to stay with, with the pandemic. Uh, it's, it's, not, uh, it's out of the uh, jack in the box. We, know, we all pretty much know that. Uh, what I think is interesting is some of the nuances that are happening with our interactions with our patients with telemedicine. And I know that Bijan, you're doing a study, but I, I, I think you'll find this funny. So I'm at Breckenridge last weekend taking a, a, a much uh, needed uh, R&R from, from all that we've been dealing with, with the added stresses that we all have been living with and our patients have been living with. And uh, uh, this was uh, 
uh, a virtual visit that was set up in the morning before I was going skiing. And I, I sent the patient to, to my office that had uh, lateral foot pain for an x-ray. And uh, my tech took it. And uh, I took a look at the x-rays and we set up a follow-up time uh, that we would discuss um, the views. And there was, there was some back and forth. And uh, uh, my patient was a little bit nervous about the idea of telemedicine. But uh, I reviewed the x-ray. I, I deemed it on the fifth metatarsal base not to be a stress fracture, but a stress reaction, which for those of you that uh, don't know, isn't a full fracture. It just implies that there's some bone activity. And we can see that sometimes with the more fuzzy margin on the outer eggshell of the bone of the outer cortex. And I was explaining this to the patient and literally by the time the communications had happened, I was now on the mountain and I had pulled over to a stand of pine trees. Now this was the, this was the swing point in the visit. As I was explaining and explained it not once but twice about the idea of this modulus of what's happening between a stress reaction and how it could potentially move into a fracture. Because of the telemedicine interaction, the patient became nervous and was on the ledge of wondering whether this was the right idea for her. Because now there was a new term that was introduced. She was worried about what does this you know, stress reaction mean? I gave her the treatment plan, was the, which was the option of either uh, a surgical shoe, a boot, and then we even talked about a, a stiffer shoe that we had as, as, a, as an option. And uh, she opted, and I, I mentioned also, you're gonna need to use a, a cane to, you know, on the other side. And she explained how you know, one person told her to use it on the same side. And I said, no, 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 that's, that's not the way you were, you, you were doing it your, the right way initially, which is the opposite side to offload you know, the, the side that's injured. Um, so with that as a segue, Bijan, I know you are, are doing some research. Now, fortunately, I, I, I was able to reschedule this uh, patient till tomorrow, in fact, and, and we're going to you know, review how she's doing, and then I'll get the hands-on uh, you know, to sort of solidify the visit. But tell me about the research that you're doing with telemedicine, and David, if you could add uh, any uh, words after Bijan speaks about uh, some of your experiences, because I know you're doing telemedicine all over the world. So, Bijan, why don't you start? Sure. Uh, maybe I can uh, share my screen if it's okay with you to sure. give a simple sure. example about. I think Sonia can uh, make that happen. Yes. Can you see my screen? Yes. So uh, this is, uh, as you know, VA actually is one of the leader on telemedicine, and we are very lucky that we are collaborating with VA Houston, that is one of the largest VA. Um, we use, I'm guessing we were one of the first that we um, implement the concept of telerehabilitation. And this is very simple. This is exactly what's happening here. So through the video, we coach the patient. We sent actually ship and made every exercise tools for that individual. This is for the patient who has COPD or, car, uh, or um, um, CHF um, uh, heart failure conjunction heart failure. So first we provide education for them, then we provide some respiratory exercise, then we guide them how to do the exercise. This is one of the great value of actually telemedicine because if this, this patient can benefit from exercise, but since that problem to commute, to come to rehabilitation center to receive exercise, they have a high rate of the dropout. If you look at the literature, um, we have over 70% dropout on the exercise that is fully reimbursed by insurance 
by those patients who are frail because they, they cannot travel or commute to the exercise trophy, but they can get these other telemedicine. The same way that you are having face-to-face, -face, you can provide actually um, uh, remotely. And that actually, it, it, it can help. Actually, we, we show the results that how effective for those patients, usually we are using one of the outcomes that we are using six minutes walk distance test. It's a functional capacity. As you see here for all participants, we have improvement about 16% that is medium effect size and even show that we reverse some of the frailty. So this is a traditional way, but it's very popular to using the data. So now we said that how we can make these even simpler and making virtually supervised and also adding some gamification that Professor Armstrong mentioned that to even engage them more in the exercise. And this is a much recent um, uh, actually program that we developed. Um, Heights work is, is simply we ask patient to play a game. And how we do, we do that? We attach a sensor, variable sensor, is the same sort of using the smartwatch or a smartphone, they become very cheap. And these sensors act like a joystick that we use to play game. But you can use these to attach the joints of interest that by movement of that joint, the patient can play the game. So for, for instance, this is one of the game that we designed. It is, it's called a space shooter game. Actually, when I was a kid, I, I used to play that game using Atari. So what it does is that when you are doing your feet on medial lateral direction, you can navigate aircraft to the left and right. And when you're doing very quick dorsiflexion, plantar flexion, you can hit and you can actually hit the, uh, the target on the screen. So you need to be very fast. And actually the patient are doing very well, even those who have rigidity, they do very well. And we did a study that this is very good exercise to improve venous return flow that is very important to prevent DVT as well as actually activate the calf muscles. So on the computer laptop that I place here and you see some sensor that are ENG sensor, we measure activation muscles. And I don't know that this screen is small, but it's very nicely activated calf muscles. So you can develop the same game for different joints. And actually patients really like it. Um, this is the second exercise that we developed for kind of the like management neuropathy is um, kind of the perception exercise for improving perception of position of joint in space. So for that game, uh, so simply uh, by dorsiflexion and plantar flexion of the foot, you, you navigate a bird on the space. So if you, for example, plantar flex, the bird is going up. And if dorsiflex, the, the bird is going down. And then you can navigate through the building and obstacles. Sometimes you need to be very fast. You need to quickly move to quickly bring the bird down. And that also, as you can see on the EMG signal, is good to activate some of the muscles of interest that we would like to have. And for adding resistive exercise, actually we are using this sitting bike is cost $20 on Amazon. And you, you integrate the same uh, flying bird, but simply when you bike uh, fast, the bird is going down. When you stop, the bird going slowly down. If you bike in reverse, the bird's quickly coming down. And you can have these to any joint. So this is, I believe that it might be the future of some personal exercise. We are hoping that for a patient who has wounds, and may not do weight bearing exercise 
at least they can do that exercise to keep the muscles active. Actually, originally we designed this exercise for, um, this is of course another exercise, another way that we have, but we use this for hemodialysis patient. And we demonstrate that in hemodialysis, when they are receiving hemodialysis, they can play that game. And this is effective to reduce their depression. Also is effective to um, actually improve their gait and mobility. It looks like very simple exercise, but sometimes uh, those patients, since they are not doing anything, this simple exercise is already great for them. They don't need to go to the gym and, oops, <laughs> I'm excited. So, and running on treadmill, they, they can just play those kind of this simple game. And again, we, we can personalize them to the need that they have. So by the way, we just got a grant from VA that we plan to develop the same program for COVID-19 patient who discharge from hospital and they may have muscle loss in lower extremity. This is a condition that we're calling as myopathy. Some of them may develop neuropathy because of ICU when they are bed, bed rest for a prolonged period of time and intubated, they may have this condition of the neuropathy. And unfortunately, currently, we don't have a good solution to help them to recover fast. Those conditions are currently on acute condition. But if we don't provide anything for them, it can turn to chronic. That would be very hard to reverse them. So we are hoping that by providing these kind of the exercise, we can help them to reverse their neuropathy, uh, those numbness or maybe lack of perception feedback that they have and regain the muscles that uh, for that patient. All of those tablets has telemedicine. That means we video call patient because all of them that video call like FaceTime that you have in iPhone. And then when we video call them, we can have a control of the screen we can guide them how to do the exercise as well as how to attach a sensor, but everything is automatic. So uh, th those tablets are on kiosk mode, mode. That means that this tablet uniquely used for that purpose. When you turn on automatically, the interface of the game is, uh, is, uh, is um, actually displaying to the patient. So even if they are non-tech savvy, they don't need to do anything. So just they need to turn on and turn off the tablet and everything automatically is done and can be coached remotely uh, via telemedicine. Well, Bijan, I mean, this is genius. I think you, you hit it on uh, a, a couple different levels. One, uh, David uh, David's idea of humility where you're ingratiating yourself to the patient by having them participate in a game that's fun. Uh, but do you, do you play chess, Bijan? Do, are you a chess player? Because yes. I think the brilliant part of this is you've also uh, what we would say forked the patient, you know, held the you know, you know held the bishop and the rook, and that now you have your your um, sort of uh, complete um, me uh, mechanized way that you've recorded what they've actually done. Uh, so I love that part of it. The one thing I wanted to sort of ask you about this in particular is with the idea of use it or lose it with proprioception for neuropathy, what specific findings are you getting so far in terms of how much can we really gain with this gaining where we're doing fine dexterity moments with our, our feet and, and uh, lower uh, leg muscles from what you initially can see? So uh, actually we are really at the beginning of the road. So we just tested okay. feasibility. We don't have the results, but actually in another study uh, that was for ICU patient with uh, critically ill COVID-19 because 
Um, we, we talk about this pandemic, but sometimes we may not realize that unfortunately, um, even if the patient um, discharged from hospital, often they are dealing with the post-COVID symptoms or syndromes. That is a problematic. And uh, of course, uh, ideally we need to start uh, some uh, intervention in the ICU to avoid those kind of condition. And uh, that, that's kind of the method that we, we try to implement. We just finished a study. Again, I, I share actually my slide for exactly prevention of neuropathy and myopathy that I told you. That was based on functional electrical stimulation uh, that we apply in the ICU patient. That was a small study. Again, it was randomized control trial. We randomly assigned a group in the intervention and another group in the control group. Uh, we provide electrical stimulation. I don't know, you can see on that picture that attach on uh, each of the calf muscles that what it does, it's, uh, it's activate the muscles. You're not an electroshocking patient. These are very small magnitude, but they are very good to keep muscle activated. And um, then um, uh, one of the device, of course, for the sham group, uh, it was non-functional. Even the person who applied didn't know that it's functional because when they turn on the device, it's like everything, it works, but actually doesn't deliver electricity to activate the muscles. And use that technology that is based on near-infrared spectroscopy um, that help us to look at the tissue oxygenation. It's like the pulse oximetry that you're using on your finger, but this is uh, near-infrared that uh, can penetrate on the skin and with one millimeter on the skin, you can say the level of oxygenation. But that, that's kind of the method that we have and we follow them for seven days. And of course, we demonstrate that how well this electric stimulation can keep the oxygenation. Um, th this is early results, but now we have final results for all the subjects. But actually, we demonstrate that uh, the, if we provide that treatment on a daily basis, one hour per day in the ICU patient, we can preserve their muscles. Uh, but the group that didn't receive that um, treatment, they have a significant decline on the muscle function. And they developed some sign of the neuropathy, and they, they, and one of them is related to the poor uh, perfusion, tissue perfusion that they have in the leg, because we know that to have blood flow to our feet, we need to walk, we need to move. But somebody who is in ICU and is bedbound and doesn't move at all, their leg is the problem that's happening. There is not perfusion, there is not oxygenation. They start losing the muscles, and the nerves start to be damaged like the same condition that we have in diabetes population. So we are very excited about that kind of the research and the treatment that we, are, we can provide for this patient population. Hey, uh, Bijan, I just saw a question from Kavita Rajendran, who had asked uh, if uh, these gamification techniques are really only specifically related to exercise or if they could be applied to other uh, uh, areas in uh, medicine and surgery. Actually, it's a very hot topic. It's applied to everything. Uh, Stanford, for instance, they have a dedicated, actually, research program on gamification uh, and already implemented. If you have a smartwatch, probably notice you that sometimes give you a badge when you reach your goal. It's like, congratulations. Hey, you, you reached the goal. I sometimes encourage you. Hey, you have seven days in a row. You hit your goal. Mm -hmm. And you can sometimes share these in social media. 
So those are gamification. So gamification doesn't mean that you should play a game. Actually, all of them are game, encourage you. Why are we calling game? Because at the game, we get some score. We, 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 we happy that we reach to some goal and we get some badge in return or some reward. So this is a reward-based aspect. And that implemented on every aspect of the treatment. Um, a, a completely different example is ongoing project that we have for patients with dementia that um, actually we create a smart home for them. For instance, in the bottle of medication, there, there is a smart tag like this barcode that you are using that one and uh, the patient wear a pendant sensor. So when there's a time of medication, we can see that the patient actually interact with this bottle of medication and taking medication. And then we use these to encourage actually the patient, give them the badge or creating a smart calendar for them that they don't miss a dose even. And this is not just that. We, we manage all the instrumental activity of their living. We have even developed an app. It's like a spy that we install on their computer or cell phone, of course, with their permission, is ongoing research. But we can check that for how long they have phone conversation, uh, whether they are using their social app or some of the apps, how much they spend on it, whether they watch some photos or not. And based on those kind of information, we develop an algorithm that can evaluate their cognitive preserve. There is a tablet that is voice enabled for the patient that actually share, for example, the grandkids' picture. Sometimes they provide audiobooks, and there are a lot of gamification features that engage them to engage them on daily activity, encourage them to do the exercise, and many more. This is, for yeah. example, one example, but you can have over and over ex uh, uh, examples. And, 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 and so much, so much of this stuff. I mean, there's so much to this, and it's really a rich area, like so many other areas. But so much of this. He uh, does not really fall into the realm of, of, of medicine, surgery, you know, mechanics and science. It falls into the realm in, in many ways of, um, uh, uh, of behavior, of even of marketing. And, and I know that sounds crass and I don't mean it to sound that way, but um, in fact, there are, we've been working um, more and more closely with our Marshall School of Business at SC here to uh, the same people to do marketplace and all the other things to figure out ways to nudge people to help them do what they already say they want to do, uh, but maybe aren't, or maybe what we say, and, and it's, there's all these elements of negotiation and kind of feedback and positive feedback and, and, and how you can nudge people into doing something slowly and you can affect change kind of gradually. It's kind of like changing eating by slowly shrinking the size of a plate, for instance. Uh, but uh, we're talking about doing that almost electronically uh, to try to, uh, to signal people into uh, different types of uh, health behaviors that you've already spoken with them about that you want them to do and they want them to do. So it's, it's a, such a cool time to be, to be playing around with all this stuff and to be learning about all this. It really is a, it's just great. In terms of um, approachability with the device, uh, Bijan, that you're talking about with the electric stim, with the neuropathy, is it, I, I, I t is it a, something more than a standard TENS unit that you're using? I'm, I'm guessing it's more sophisticated than that. And how uh, approachable and marketable 
with both patients and insurance companies, does the um, device that you are using for the electric stim uh, for, for better uh, outcomes with wound healing, et cetera, uh, give, give us sort of a, uh, the lowdown on that, that aspect of it. Yes, uh, it, it's similar to TENS unit, but at the same time, it's not. I mean, all the TENS unit use uh, electricity, but, um, but, uh, but it depends on the shape of that electrical signal that does matter. Uh, if you look at low-cost TENS, they are using like a square shape. So what that means, that means that when you have a square shape and a square shape that is not as smooth, it gives this sensation of electroshocking. And that's not a good feeling. And the patient, they don't like it. But there are now some companies that design, redesign those electricity, adding some kind of the burst, very smooth way to remove this sensation of electroshocking. And now it's feeling like somebody's massaging, actually, the foot or the muscle. So it's a good feeling, actually, rather than to be bad feeling. And they become closed loop. So the low cost tens, um, they don't check, for example, the, this, the conductivity of the scheme. And if you don't check the conductivity of the scheme, the amount of the current that's going and penetrating the scheme could cause bad feeling. For example, dry skin, it doesn't have a good conductivity, but it, actually a moisture skin, it might be different. So when you are using the same magnitude amplitude on somebody that's adjusted with the dry skin maybe doesn't work on a moisture skin. And that's, that's a part that make it a little challenge to make those technologies home-based. Usually uh, to get a good outcomes, uh, the patient should come to physical therapies to apply, to adjust those parameters that sometimes very sophisticated to, to, um, to make this happen. But now there are some new technology that use the concept of a closed loop. That means that the measure skin conductivity, they play automatically with parameters. There is some artificial intelligence into it and adjust automatically the magnitude that is needed for that, in, um, that individual. And actually we test this for wound healing as a home-based therapy. And uh, the patient really like it. And actually, we, we just finished it. The paper is currently under review to demonstrate that these kind of techniques is effective as an adjunctive therapy. Again, it's not a replacement of therapy. It's a supplement therapy. And it shows that compared to control group, it seems that the speed of the wound healing uh, for, for the patient. For ICU, when you are using for activation muscles, there is other parameters that you need to pay attention to it. Uh, keep in mind that if the patient, if even in athletes, this happening, if you're running too much uh, and uh, th these muscles, they are burning oxygen in the tissue. And if you completely deserve this supply of oxygen, in the muscles, instead of gaining muscles, you start losing muscles. So it's damaged the muscles. You're seeing these on some of the patients with peripheral artery disease that when you force them to walk on treadmill to improve perfusion, sometimes you may damage the muscles as well because muscles need to have oxygen and nutrition to survive. If you force them too much and you burn all the oxygen out of the muscles, you can damage it. And for ICU, that was the biggest challenge that we had, how to 
adjust these to ensure that we are not burning the oxygen on the muscles because the patient sometimes are unconscious. And if you activate the muscle too much for one hour, you can start damaging those muscles. And that, that's, that's a part that we, we were lucky to have technology using this near infrared camera that we personalize for each individual. We apply them, we ensure that that doesn't cause a negative impact on the oxygen level of the muscles, and then we adjust them. We were safe to say that this is what we can do it. But for reaching to that level, we did it a lot of in laboratory tests to come up with the right setup. Uh, but if you consider that one, uh, we, we, we got some very good results out of it. David, I wanted to jump gears a second on something that um, you're familiar with uh, because you've done so much vascular work, but also something that I think is very important that you mention, and you have uh, another colleague that's doing research on the endovascular COVID link. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit? Uh, you updated me uh, several months ago, but there's maybe been even more, and particularly with what just happened with uh, Johnson and Johnson, uh, those reports. So, so talk to me a little bit about um, sort of the endovascular link and um, a little bit more about where you think it's going and um, anything else that you can share about it. Well, sure. I, I think that, um, I mean, this is a little bit kind of inside baseball kind of stuff, but, but broadly, uh, I think that, um, you know, we've been talking about this and I think the data have borne it out that, you know, a lot of COVID related significant complications are really vascular uh, complications and it happens to be transmitted through the lung. I mean, even the lung parenchyma um, are being attacked. Uh, you know, in a, I mean, there's a there's a vascular component to that, and a lot of these patients that we're seeing uh, just, I mean, just last night actually, I'm actually getting texted about one right now. I'm just trying to respond to it's coming into our emergency department, but patients that are having really significant uh, uh, throm uh, thrombotic. Uh, kind of prothrombotic uh, sort of uh, uh, presentations. And uh, one of my uh, friends and, and partners, Ken Ziegler, uh, was just, he's a vascular surgeon, uh, you know, world-class. He was just working on a, a patient of ours at, the, um, at our uh, county hospital. And that patient uh, had a, 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 a kind of a, a thrombus that was, just massive and decidedly unusual. And this problem that we're kind of seeing with these acute on chronic cold legs has been pretty common and, and uh, or more common than we'd like to see in, in folks with COVID. And we think that's because these patients are just, there's a real pro-thrombotic, pro-inflammatory kind of condition going on. So, and that may be what we were initially seeing early on, maybe a year ago when people were talking about, you know, COVID toe and things like that. Um, where you'd see little little flecks that looked almost like little emboli. So, but yeah, and so the treatment of this, um, I think, has been to more aggressively kind of treat that medically and and uh, and surgically. And I think we're only gonna, we're only starting to learn about this as you're getting into some. We're going to learn more about this with some of the COVID long haulers, uh, which is a, maybe a pretty big percentage of patients, uh, more than we'd like to see. Um, who are having long-term symptoms uh, post uh, post COVID, and these are young folks and older folks. 
I know there's some people that might have some questions out there uh, and I want to, because we've been at it for uh, about an hour plus and I, I wanted to just allow people to uh, uh, chime in and ask some questions to uh, both clinicians. Um, if there's anything out there that, that people want to uh, have them expand on. Anyone? Not yet, not just right yet. Um, well, Bijan, do you want to, oh, Tony, Tony, go ahead. Tony, by the way, is somebody that spent uh, several months with me uh, in the clinic and uh, is helped me. Uh, uh, we did something on CBD. We did a little, uh, uh, a little paper that we did on, uh, on the effects of CBD. And um, Tony now is at uh, Columbia uh, Medical School, or, well, you explain where you are. Was it, is it a master's, Tony? Go yeah, so, so I'm studying nutrition right now. I'm doing uh, cancer research at uh, New York Presbyterian. And one, one thing in research, which I, I thought you guys hit on in really unique ways, was the issue of, uh, you know, the electronic health records and the electronic medical records and patient access, you know, both patient access and also um, researchers access to these information because the reality is there's so much data out there that can be utilized. But of course, with permissions and whatnot being a problem, I wanted to ask what your opinions are in that long term when it comes to other research outputs and things that we can tap into that could help in issues such as precision medicine. Thank you. Jean? Sure. Uh, oh, that's an excellent question, but it's not very easy to answer, to be <laughs> honest. So when it's coming to um, electronic health record, I mean, uh, as you know, we have HIPAA reg regulations. So it's not something that you can easily have in access to them. But at the same time, um, this is maybe a good part of NIH that when you get uh, funding from NIH, you need to share the database that is completely de-identified. So you address the aspect of the HIPAA compliance, and then this database is available to export them. Um, uh, there are already several large databases that you can explore them, and sometimes you can reach out to the to the PI and getting additional details. But um, if you would like to look at electronic health record, this is what we are doing in the hospital base. But it's it's a some inside circle for those people who has a city training, the training that's required to understand the concept of doing research on human subject, understand the consenting form. And um, often uh, we are doing what we're calling as retrospective study. We have a good research question. We get approval from IRB, and then we are going to electronic health record retrospectively to understand what's going on and what we can um, extract from this data. When we have prospective study, uh, sometimes it's much easier because uh, from the patient RD, we get the consent form and we get additional consent that uh, we, we are allowed to use electronic health record of that individual even after the study. So that is a language that we use in the IRB. Of course, we have a strong justification that why we are using those information and that help us to explore the electronic health record. I see another question. Uh, Tony, did that answer your question? Yeah, no, that's great and very applicable, like all the future work I want to do with Dr. Pearl and others. So I really appreciate that, uh, Dr. Njofsky. Thank you. I have a, a question for everyone from Sonia about 
what should a student look for if they want to get involved in uh, research? Let's say they're in undergrad. They're not quite sure what direction they want to go, but what things to keep that they should keep in mind so that it's a good fit for them and maybe the, uh, the person that they're doing the research with. Well, uh, the, uh, actually, speaking of research, uh, I'm not doing research, actually. Let me just send this note uh, to, this, uh, 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 to, the, to this emergency department right now. Uh, and uh, um, So maybe in the meantime that David- uh, Oh, yeah, I do. Well, yeah, you, I, I'll, I'm, I'm back now. I just we'll was, back. We'll I, I'm back. taking care of patients this way. It's safer if I take care of my patients at a distance, statistically. I think my patients are going to do better, um, but uh, anyway, the, the, this is such a good question. It really is uh, from 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 Sonia. And uh, uh, the look, the bottom line is that um, none of us have any idea what we want to do. I, I you know, for, for the rest of our lives, we may think we do. I certainly uh, always, you know, thought I did, but I've made so many changes over my life, uh, uh, you know, back and forth. But what I would say is just, and it, this depends on your personality, but uh, um, I, I think look to things that obviously interest you, at, you know, now, but really look to ideas that you think are big ones for the future. And then just as important, um, if you can try to identify, and again, it's so hard to do this externally. If you're like surfing, uh, you know, like uh, at the the web looking for a, a mentor at a, in a medical school, uh, you know, you know, website. It's almost like you know, swipe left, freaking swipe right. Uh, it's impossible, really, to, to make these kinds of determinations about like, someone that's going to be a great mentor. But a lot of it really does have to do with personality. I mean. I, I, I think that um, I like to say to, to our trainees that, you know, they choose us before we choose them. Um, but when that does happen, um, we take the, the, the mentoring really seriously. Because I, I think that's like, I mean, we, I, obviously, we don't take ourselves very seriously, but we take the work seriously. How's that? And, and, uh, and I think and, and a lot of that work is in mentoring people, because I think ultimately that's how you're judged. I think any mentor, any woman, any man that's doing work in this area um, is not judged on how much money they've brought in, although that's all freaking great, how many papers they've written or how many lectures they've given in how many countries or how many surgeries they've done or whatever the heck, how many awards. Ultimately, they're judged by what I call, you know, just like you have your your kids ultimately, and they're like your personal progeny. Um, I call my uh, research kids my professional uh, progeny, and it's the same thing. And, and it's it and it's a sacred thing. And and and, um, and when you find uh, folks like that, it, it mandates that you get out there. And maybe that means right now, unfortunately, getting out there uh, virtually, um, but you know, just ping the heck out of people and just keep bumping into things until you, they either give way and you enter into something or you find a way around something and you find your way into a, something that fascinates you. And it's, by the way, it's okay to change something three or four or five times. This is like a big old buffet for you. It's like a smorgasbord 
and and uh, the goal for you guys is to to cut sample from that and find what you like. And something you know, something else is if you happen to get into someone's um, you know research, like into a lab, let's say if you're doing basic work or if you're getting into uh, kind of a uh, kind of a clinical research setting, you know you're going to be bumping into a lot of other uh, women and men, and that uh, uh, that you may say, "Holy cow, what what's she doing? That's pretty great. I want to be like her." Or God dang that guy! Whoa, man! And so, and that should be you, like all the time, like wow, you know? Because uh, uh, I know when I was rotating, I want uh, as a clinic clinically, I wanted to be every specialist that I uh, that I rotated through, pretty much for every single one, I mean, even frigging pathology, which like you know, but dead stuff. I I even enjoyed that, uh, but uh, and who enjoys that? By the way, I, you know, I, maybe some pathologists, right? but they're probably pathological. Uh, but, but the point is that, uh, just, there is no answer to, to this question except energy. <laughs> I think it just get, uh, identify someone, uh, that you think is going to take an interest in what you're doing is going to mentor you. And if you're in a unit that doesn't have that, then, then it's okay to find another one. Um, or maybe check yourself, right? Uh, am I am I putting everything I can into this? Uh, and uh, and ultimately, that's going to lead you to a, uh, I think to a good place. And I think what you're going to find is you'll you'll find that this research path um, it's all about people, right? And it's a worldwide web of people, just like it's a world wide web of hyperlinks. And that woman or that man that is uh, one or two or 10 or 15 levels above you on the wiring diagram at that time, these are all people that are gonna be really important um, uh, for the rest of your life and save them, right? These are, these are and, and that's sacred too. And that's not cynical and people call it networking or whatever you call it. It's almost sounds like it's a, like it's a transactional thing. And, you know, maybe it can be, but I don't think it should be. I don't think it is all the time, you know, because the people you're with uh, going up and around and, and down, there are a lot of people that may never be able to punch your ticket for something, but, you know, you had a relationship with them. Uh, and, and then all of a sudden, 15 years later, uh, that woman is associate dean of X or chairperson of that and you had no idea and oh man what the heck and all of a sudden boom magic so i i know all i didn't even say anything i just had some soliloquy and it's likely because i'm hypoglycemic i don't have my acai bowl yet which i'm really jonesing for fyi but i think you get what i'm saying is get in with someone that's like-minded uh, with you and, uh, and even if they're not like-minded with you, just someone in that lab will be, and almost whatever you're doing ultimately is gonna be, is gonna be positive and just keep moving. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and that's the way you're gonna keep learning. I mean, really, and you'll, you'll find this kind of moving forward. Again, I've said almost nothing and uh, it's been a lot of sound and fury and has signified essentially nothing. That's my word from the bard.
Well, sometimes just the grounding statements, David, like you started with the humility of the feet and just uh, why we do what we do. And, and man, I should have, I should have, I should have stopped there. Money we have when we're six feet under or what, what our legacy with uh, what we leave with, uh, with people, you know, uh, Bijan, you have anything you want to add to that? Uh, David nicely actually uh, said everything. It's, it's like a personal medicine. So everything is personalized also for the research. Of course, uh, some, some tip that I may have is that if you have opportunity, try to do shadowing, uh, doing internship. Uh, we have a lot of undergraduate uh, that, that came to our team and through um, actually interaction and hands-on on the research, they, they find out that whether this is an area that like it or not. Um, unfortunately, during COVID-19, I know that on campus uh, shadowing, sometimes they may have some limitation. But um, now uh, many of lab meeting that they are talking about the research now is over Zoom. So just if you're interested about the research of every group, just ask them that when they have lab meeting and whether they can share their Zoom link with you so it can actually pop up and seeing that what they talk about the research. And often in particular for undergraduate student it would be good to team up with a graduate student with a postdoc because they, they have good time, you can spend them and you can learn it. You can engage in publication that sometimes it might be good if in particular you would like to apply to good medical school or um, in particular later on when you would like to match a good residency program, having a couple of publication in the CV may help. Uh, about the area of the research, uh, I might be biased, but I believe that um, the, the research um, or even the medicine, uh, it's going to more interdisciplinary. Uh, I'm engineer, but my appointment is Department of Surgery. How odd it is. <laughs> and this is the reality. I mean, all the disciplines that are coming together. And I believe that maybe those who are more engaged on interdisciplinary research, uh, maybe they may have a better future in their research. I, I don't know. This, this is my personal opinion. It doesn't apply to everything, but maybe for the topic that it's across disciplinary, there are people from different disciplines that working together, maybe you can gain more from them. Yeah, and listen, if you get in there and you do what you do, it, what's great about academia, and it's not, in, it, it's, and some may say this isn't necessarily true, but I, th I really think it, at the end of the day, it, it, it's, it's become this way. There's, it's more of a meritocracy in, um, in, in academic medicine and in, and in, in, research, in research than in a lot of other areas uh, around, uh, uh, around the world where there are enormous biases. Are there ones in, uh, um, in, in, in medicine and academia too? Yes, but are, uh, uh, if you can bring it, um, are, you gonna, are people gonna judge you based on your work product? Yes, I really, really believe that more in in uh, um, uh, in in academia than in many, many other areas. Although there are obviously enormous barriers yet to uh, traverse, um, but it's 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 such an exciting time now for all of you, uh, uh, for all of you, and it's it, it's so much better even than when I got started. Uh, and when I got started, it was pretty great. And, uh, and, and Bijan the same way, man. I mean, 
And you see a guy like that, that's a world-class and he, he's not in an engineering department. He has a, 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 he's, he's hanging out with the surgeons because otherwise, if he's hanging out by himself, then he's going to solve yesterday's problems, maybe tomorrow, right? Instead of getting in there and, and people like uh, me are like struggling and I'm saying, well, God, God I, what's the, and then he'll say, oh, I have this idea. And, uh, and so th that's really great too, when you can uh, have your amigo in some other area uh, that looks at something a little bit differently. And, uh, it, and it's true when you're interdisciplinary like engineering and medicine, or even when you're interdisciplinary between two specialties um, in medicine. And you guys have to fight, uh, and I don't, I don't mean it in, a, in, a, in a, like a negative way, but you do have to, uh, battle against, uh, you know, people putting you pe putting things into a silo, right? Um, and the only way to fight that silo or the entropy, the uh, the trend toward uh, single particles floating away from each other, uh, is to put energy into the system to get those particles kind of a little bit more closely together, so that they start popping like a friggin' jiffy pop, and that's when things start really happening. Like that's when you get a guy like Bajan Jaffe hanging around with you. Then it's like a big old Jiffy Pop popcorn thing. Do you guys even know what Jiffy Pop is? Do you still have Jiffy Pop? No, you gotta freaking Google Jiffy Pop and you'll understand what I'm saying. You put it on the stove and you heat it up. I think that went by the way of the one piece. Oh, uh, you gotta look up Jiffy Pop. Thing. Jiffy Pop popcorn. You'll know what I'm, I'm saying in a minute. You guys are gonna wanna get one of those cause it's so freaking retro. You're gonna, if you guys have any LPs at home uh, or, or vinyl, Get a Jiffy Pop popcorn thing. Anybody else have any uh, questions for these guys? We got two of the best uh, accommodations with uh, diabetes medicine in the world, really. And uh, it's it's such a uh, it's such a thrill to have them both here on this uh, on this virtual screen. Oh, thank you. It's really fun. Yeah, I've gotten to know you a little bit better. I've got, I've, I've known David, and David is always talking about you, Bijan. Tell, do you have any uh, funny stories uh, regarding your collaboration over the years that you can share with us? Since we're getting to the uh, the final, final minutes. Wow, gosh. Uh, There's got to be one. Maybe, uh, maybe David, you can. <laughs> David, you've got to have something. I've been in interaction with David, uh, spending time with David all the time was fun. So. I don't know. I'm sure you. I should say. <laughs> well, David, got, David, I mean, look, I, I used, I used to, I used to years ago. I used to have. I still have it, actually. It's uh, kind of parked outside of my place. But I, you know, I'm a inveterate. I'm like, I'm a super highly early adopter of gadgets, uh, and uh, my definition of a gadget is very broad. <laughs> uh, but uh, the the uh, I uh, um, I did get. I did have a. Um, because I was going back and forth to the operating room a lot from my office in in uh, uh, in in, in uh, uh, Chicago, and I wanted to find out a way that I could do it because walking was great, but I, it would take me 30, 40 minutes to do it each time. So I was thinking of all these different things like a go kart or like a, uh, uh, or even uh, you couldn't drive, and a bike was not going to work really well because you couldn't really take it inside, and then the snow. So I ended up getting a Segway. Um, and it's a long story, but I had this whole dis had this discussion with uh, uh, Dean Kamen at the time, who had invented the Segway. But uh, and I don't know, you guys know what these geek Segway things are. Uh, but uh, I, I know that uh, uh, 
uh, Bijan uh, uh, used to videotape me on the uh, uh, on the Segway, and somehow that ended up somewhere uh, on uh, YouTube uh, uh, at the at the time. But uh, and I don't think you ever uh, actually ultimately got yourself a Segway, did you, Bijan? No, uh, but but I, actually I tried when I went to Budapest. Actually, I remember uh, you telling me that. Yeah, you were like going over the chain bridge in Budapest, going back and like this. On the thing, I do recall this now. Yes, there you go. Yeah, good, good, good on you, man. Well, if you want mine, it's it's kind of bricked up next to my uh, my house now. It's like some people have like uh, they're uh, like a pickup truck on on bricks, like in front of their house. I have like a Segway. <laughs> I, I do have um, before we um, before we depart. I do have one thing that I wanted to ask both of you. How um, do you guys control? uh something that is implemented such as a, a cast what, what is your uh, placebo or let's say i wanted to control my splint and then you know i'm comp comparing it to somebody that is using nothing but uh, and, and so that's a control but let's say that uh, it's known that you're not wearing something so what's the what's the best way to deal with that circumstance where it's known that you're not dealing with a uh something that's designed to help you. And then I have one quick follow-up question to that, but I'll, I'll let you sort, does that make sense, that question? I think, uh, the, the, so I, the, the, uh, the idea uh, so of placebo I think, uh, when you're wearing I, so, something. So, so, yeah, so, so yeah, so typically I would say, that's a great question, um, even when it's a terrible question. Um, and that's a great question. I'm, I'm joking, uh, but, uh, but, but, uh, but, 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 but listen, so I think what you're saying is like, did I, um, how do I, how can I have a good quality control thing, control arm when I, if, if I believe that that control is not helping the patient uh, uh, and, and uh, or, or, and how can I, I do that? And typically what you can do is you can, you know, we all have our biases going into things. So you have to put your bias, try even though you can't put biases at the door and you can say, well, are people doing this as part of a standard of care to treat a uh, problem X or Y? And if that's the case, then that can certainly be your control. And then your, um, your, your active arm, whatever that active arm is, could be something more fancy, like the thing that you want to do. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. There How we go. much do you feel that financial incentive for the people getting paid $30 to come to the clinic and their desire to, uh, be well liked and and I want to help these doctors. Therefore, yeah. even if I have the sham, I'm going to say yeah. I got better. How much do you yeah. think that exists? That's, that's, a, that's a good question. I don't think that uh, that 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 really. Uh, first of all, the amount that we give well, most of our patients to come right? in doesn't even cover a freaking bus So so I I, I don't fair. think that. I think if you if there was a whole lot of uh, I I think that if there were magnitude probably matters. If there's some massive amount of money, that would probably affect. Uh, their their assessment of of, uh, of things, but when it's just you know gas money, um, but uh, but uh, it's it's not. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't think that's no, probably. It's not that relevant. Problem. No, probably not. Yeah, well, of course. What you mentioned is very uh, difficult. That has become a designing of clinical trial, and uh, one of the big challenge is defining control group. Um, sometimes uh, there is also ethical issue. Uh, for instance, if uh, somebody uh, has wound, you cannot give uh, an offloading that doesn't offload that wound. This is unethical. Uh, if you look at earlier study of offloading, we did it, the test on 
healthy subject who doesn't have wound or diabetes patient who doesn't have wound and we compare that compared to regular shoes if the patient walked with regular shoes and then with offloading what is the percentage of the pressure reduction and that was the earlier study that we have done but for wound healing, uh, for instance, for this um, uh, large grant that David um, uh, explained earlier, the way that we designed this study to be a fair comparison is uh, to giving two arms the same offloading, but for one arm, we added this gamification or this photo reminder, remote patient monitoring component, and the other arm, no, it's just offloading. So both patient, they get the same treatment, but one, there is something extra. And then we can validate that whether there is something extra that we provide, it can improve what we call it as for primary outcome that is wound healing. Because ultimately the job of offloading is help that wound heal faster. And that's the way that we compare between two arms to say that, hey, this can significantly improve for example, the caring for wound healing. How important is this idea of paracrine signaling, this new idea of exosomes? First, we had placenta, Wharton's jelly, um, PRP, other, other things to help with uh, wound healing, and um, my particular interest with sports medicine because I injected my own uh, Achilles with uh, placenta tissue, and it, it did seem to help me. Uh, on an anecdotal basis, but how, imp what is this, uh, in your opinion, and I know there's, uh, there's still not good uh, RCT uh, data on it, but this idea of paracrine signaling with exosomes, and as, an, as yet another new uh, biosphere uh, that's going to be examined in the future and, and utilized. From what, from what well, you can read in the tea leaves. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll speak for uh, for tissue repair and wound healing. And, uh, look, the, um, when we treat these wounds, you know, they're really a hostile, it's a hostile environment. It's a, it, and, uh, there's just this kind of gamish, if you will, that's a little Yiddish for you there, Najafi. Uh, but, uh, the, the, um, but, it, but it's really just this, this, this kind of uh, broth of, uh, of, uh, of, of inflammatory uh, chemokines and, and cytokines uh, and the, and so controlling that and manipulating it is super complicated. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and various methods you were mentioning, you know, uh, treating yourself, uh, uh, you know, with one of these injections of a, of a uh, Corian or Amnion based uh, product or a placental based product. These things probably have um, effects, uh, their immune modula modulating effects. And what you may be talking about as well is also being able to modulate the way that various cells behave. In fact, they can completely change uh, cell uh, kind of personalities, like for instance, a macrophage um, or a macrophage, whichever you were, if you wanna be fancy, you might say macrophage. Uh, like I'm trying to be fancy, right? Uh, I would also say capillary and umbilicus um, d d for an extra five dollars. Uh, but the bottom line is the macrophage, the macrophage um, is often in a, as an M1 phenotype, and you can fundamentally change it into an M2, more of a kinder, gentler 
kind of more collaborative phenotype versus a kind of an angry, uh, uh, just going in and uh, eating everything up kind of uh, phenotype. That is uh, one very, very good example of uh, trying to change this hostile environment, whether it's a paracrine or an autocrine or an endocrine uh, system or, or just locally uh, into something that's a little more kinder and gentler. How's that for a, a weird soliloquy? It's a good, it's a good, complete answer. So when young doctors are coming out and they, uh, they get a fancy, uh, let's say not lobster anymore, because that's usually not within the $20 that are allowed to spend, but let's say uh, a decent steak, maybe a porterhouse. Um, By the way, there's a great lobster truck that's like right out, right down the block from us. It's just really good. And you can get actually a pretty good lot, kind of a, just a, uh, for for not that much maybe, but, but anyway, keep going. So you can tell I'm a little, uh, you know, hypo. Yep. No, how, how, and, and we'll, we'll, we're going to wrap it in, in two seconds. How, what would your advice be as to separate industry from, from real science when, and, and, and some of the cues uh, that they should look for in, into understanding, is this a, is this I, garbage yeah. or is this, is this the real deal? Well, I think that, um, you know, there are a lot of studies that are funded by industry. Um, I've participated in many and I do participate in many and I'm a principal investigator on many. Um, probably 30%, 40% of our funding uh, is uh, uh, industry. About 70% is uh, federal, maybe a little more. Um, but I think that it takes both to make the world go round. You can't meaningfully do, um, a, a, you know, a lot of discovery without uh, a partner in, with industry. But when you do that, what you have to understand is that um, uh, various you know, different, different companies and industry has a motive that might be different from your motive as a principal investigator, that might be different from your patient's motive um, or different from uh, health systems uh, or health ministries uh, motive. And I think everyone has to put their cards on the table and know where their biases are and, 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 and disclose that um, and kind of move forward. And when you do that, that's when you start to get to the truth. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of the time, the truth is that a lot of uh, uh, technologies are can be very, very helpful for people. But there are tons of things that don't ever see the light of day uh, because uh, maybe industry uh, has a negative study. Uh, and so publishing negative studies and negative work is really, really important too. And I think doing that is one great, one great way for um, industry to gain its credibility um, back, but uh, uh, if they uh, lose it uh, in in uh, in other ways, so I think it's a it's essential, um, but it's also essential that it improves. Well, I don't want to put you into any more of a hypoglycemic state, David. So, and does anybody have any last questions for for these guys, these docs tonight? Well, listen. Uh, I'm going to get let you let you guys give the last word if, if, if you like, but what I do want to do is thank you for uh, your generous time here tonight uh, with sharing uh, your views. I got to know Bijan a little bit better and Bijan is actually uh, taking time away and he had to kind of uh, sort of com uh, compress his uh, spending time with uh, for his uh, son's birthday. So I really uh, appreciate that and happy birthday to your son. Thanks. How old did he turn Bijan? 11. Oh, that's wonderful. 
That's I can't believe he's 11 already. That's awesome. So thank you again. Uh, I think this is great. And, and GW is going to uh, put this um, and we'll send the, the YouTube uh, to your respective uh, uh, program so that you, you can have that if you want to archive it. Because uh, I think this is a, a, a ends up being a great, uh, yeah. very um, stimulating, provocative talk for, for people to listen to. That's for sure. By the way, at GW, I didn't realize this was going on to GW. There are so many great folks at, at the, the medical school there too. I uh, and on our end, uh, your chief of surgery is uh, uh, Tony Sadawi, who's just such a great guy. He's a, the, he's a vascular surgeon and a wonderful mentor as well. I didn't even realize that. You guys yeah, uh, go send him, send him our regards. They, they, yeah. they formed a club um, yeah. and, and really uh, sort of alpha chaptered this, uh, this idea that they would uh, try to collaborate with um, local physicians like myself to provide some educational programming. And I think they're going to have uh, the Surgeon General uh, uh, come over to speak at one of their uh, meetings. They, they uh, got a grant. So for undergrads, I think the, this little group of uh, folks is amazing, these students. Oh, that's, uh, that's really awesome. Yeah, you can definitely do that. And look, one of my, uh, you know, one of my friends uh, is a uh, uh, that I uh, work work with and work with now is a uh, former surgeon general as well, and I bet he can get on too. And that's uh, Rich Carmona. Um, that's as well. exactly. So, uh, oh, you're Sorry. oh you're, you're talking about Rich Carmona? Yeah, we were paying him um, 15k to come speak with us. What the what? Oh, that's yeah. what's well, great. But uh, that's uh, the the. Uh, well, listen. Uh, the uh, send my regards yeah. to Richard Carmona. The the yeah. Uh, he he's. Uh, you can ask him, uh, uh, well, I'm sure he'll have great stories to tell you, uh, yeah. but uh, I think he'll be full of great wisdom. That's for sure. Yes, I know. I have the chance to collaborate. Oh, sure you did. Yes. Wow. And thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for everyone for coming today. Like no, not at all. Making this happen. Like we had like, I believe almost 40 people in attendance. This is like, like in our social media groups, like is one of the most talked about, like, and people like their like images, like the like the posts. So you guys are you guys are the first or second. Uh, oh well, uh, we, we pre appreciate it very much. Not at all. And uh, and when yeah. you talk to when you talk to Rich Carmona, you can ask him about when he was um, with me at uh, at my house barbecuing with the ambassador to Cuba. Ask him oh. that. Ask him to tell you that story. Uh, and that's uh, Jorge Cabanas actually, who's now no longer the ambassador to Cuba. That was about a growth wow. factor, actually. Interestingly, you guys will see that. Yeah, the very first ambassador came in. That's so, so cool. Uh, wow. Yeah, that, that'll be, yeah, you were at, were you there, Bijan? That was after you left, wasn't it? Uh, I, I missed oh, that event, actually. Bijan. I wasn't there. That was after you left Tucson. Yeah, there you are. Maybe uh, it would be cool if you guys even, if you guys wanted to come to the health summit and have that conversation there. I think that'd be like a really- Oh, cool. yeah, well, just uh, ping me when that happens. And I'll see if I can pop on. Okay, that sounds great. Thank yeah, you so yeah. much. For sure. All right, you guys, listen, take care and be well. That was just a lot of Thank fun. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Okay. Bye. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. All right. Well, hey, when you get, when Adam, when you get this uh, wrapped up, please send it to me. And then 